0: about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very uh, means that God has provided to save the lost from their sins through Jesus Christ. And in the book of Romans it has emphasized the great need that everybody has. Yeah, you know, there's not a single soul that does not need Jesus Christ in their life. So it's profoundly uh, made the argument that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God, as a result, has provided the perfect means of atoning and propitiating for our sins, and that's his Son. Uh, But that salvation is accessible through faith. We must have the faith to believe not only in Jesus, but also the faith to believe Jesus and therefore, respond and follow and obey you know, the teaching of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And when we do, that's going to change us. Uh, and we are all works in progress. And so the changes is going to affect us in our attitudes and in our actions and our interactions with others. So that you know we are to be reflecting God in our life and reflecting the fact that Jesus is our King and our Lord. And so we come back to you know we come to the end of of Romans with the sixteenth chapter, where the kind of the weekly thought is this, where uh, I simply summed it up by saying affectionate greetings that are exchanged among faithful laborers, saints in Christ that promotes, that encourages fellowship and unity in the Lord. And so we're going to talk about uh, this chapter a bit, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm not going to begin at, at the first verse. I'm going to begin at the end of the chapter, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 25 through 27 Romans 16, 25 through 27. And what we find here is basically we've come full circle. What Paul uh, begins in the introduction of the book in chapter 1, he concludes as well. And so it reads, now to him. Now, don't you, you notice the sentence, this sentence, is, is not normally we, we would talk. Because you know, he says, now to him. You know, and then he says, okay, you're going to do something. He says, okay, now to him. And in verse 27, be glory. That's the point. Everything in the middle of of this long sentence is really an exposition. It is a description of of who God is and what God's done. And so it says, And now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ... According to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory and forever. Amen. So it ends with this, with this great statement of praise and where we need to recognize that we need to be praising God, glorifying God, for not only for what, who he is, but also for what he has done, particularly in this, as Paul has argued and defended throughout you know, this writing, particularly in regard to the gospel. Uh, we need to glorify God for the revelation of his gospel. We need to be grateful you know, for the message of good news that offers us forgiveness and salvation and hope. And so he says, to him who's able to do this and has done this, he says, to him we give glory. And so it's his concluding statement after the great discourse he's gone through. But a couple points I want to very quickly mention here as we think about what is said in, the, in, in these few verses. One, the idea of God is able you need to think about a little bit about that. God is able, and he's able to do a lot of things. In the context of, of these verses, he says, God is able to establish you who are called in Christ. Chapter 1 talks about those who are called in Christ. You know, he's talking to the saints, the Christians in Rome. He says, you've been called in Christ through the gospel. And so he says, okay, God now... Who's provided you this revelation of His Son? He is able to establish you, saints. You know at that point. This God is able to establish you. That's why you need to glorify Him. That's. Why. But we think about what does it mean to you know? New Americans use the word establish. Some other versions may say says things. He's able to strengthen you. The idea here is. God is able to make you fast, to make you strong, to set you in such a way that you are grounded in standing firmly in the Lord. And the reason why that's so important is because of something he has said earlier in this chapter. He he talked earlier about the idea of false teachers, those that that would cause dissension, those who would cause one to be led astray. And he says, you know, now he says, so God is able to make you strong. God is able to make you so you can stand against these threats to your faith. You know, the thing is, there is not a single one of us that's not beyond, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's not a single one of us that's not beyond falling short of the glory of God again. And there's not a single one of us that's not beyond being misled if we're not alert and careful and so he's talking to christians the saints in rome particularly that's the initial audience and he's still talking to us still because the nature of god's word that it is relevant and applicable in every generation and so he's talking to christians saying god is able to make you strong enough to withstand whatever but you need to realize, if you're not careful, you can be thrown off course. Uh, in Ephes- yeah, over here, Jason, Leanne. In Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 4, it talks about the idea you know, of not being tossed by every wind of doctrine, you know, but speaking the truth in love. And so there's this idea we need to realize, God is able to strengthen us for the threat of false teaching. Leanne? My, bu- my Bible says wisdom. Right, uh-huh. Wisdom in it. And, you know, there's a difference in worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Right. Mm-hmm. People always emphasize, well, i got to have the best education possible. No, you got to know God's wisdom. That's, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the most important thing. Because when people are, uh, people can quote the Bible left and right. They can even read the Bible to you. They know what it says in there. But if they're not practicing mm-hmm. what is in the Bible, and sometimes we're guilty of it. I'm guilty of it, too. Um, it doesn't mean we're perfect people. It just means if you're not practicing what's in the Bible, then you cannot say that you're a Christian. And if you don't know the Bible, and you don't know the history, and you don't know you don't have God's wisdom in you, then you will be persuaded. Right. The, the whole objective of, of God's Word ultimately is to bring us about to the result, the the uh, the uh, the response of obedience. And so God is able to ground us. God is able to establish us in the way so we can stand firm. And the, and the point is, how does he do that? The point is, in these verses, God uses the gospel. The gospel is the means that God establishes us. The gospel is the means that is able to not only call us into Christ, but the gospel is the means that it, to strengthen us, to make us set in firmly in the faith. That is, the words of grace and truth, the words of eternal life, uh, if you recall, in Acts 20, verse 32, you know, Paul meets with the elders of Ephesus, and he is kind of giving a, a farewell exhortation there and farewell instructions to that leadership. And in the 32nd verse, it talks about, he said, now I commend you, do you remember what he said, what he commends now? He's, he's, he's given them some instruction, he's given them some warning, he said, watch out, there's people going to come in, you know, who are going to lead you astray. He says, and so now I commend you to what? But you know what that says? The word of his grace, which is, which is able to secure your inheritance, the means by which God establishes us so that we can withstand temptation, withstand error and false teaching that could lead us astray, is God's word. The very word that has come to us through God's prophets and God's authority uh in this it talks about how it, it was once a mystery is it a mystery now no it's not a mystery any, any longer why is it not a mystery any longer right right and so and the point is yes in in times past before the coming of christ before the revelation of the fullness of the gospel it was a mystery we didn't have all the pieces You know, it's kind of like okay, you got you know pieces of a puzzle, but you don't have all the pieces yet, and you don't even know the you don't even you don't even have the picture. All you've got pieces, and he says, but now we've got the whole picture. You know, through Jesus Christ, we have got all the pieces that can come together. And so, yes, it was a mystery, but now it's not. It is unveiled. It is manifested. It is made made known. So that's why the gospel, this power of God. That's the thing when you remember, the Gospel is God's power, and that power that comes from God is the living Word, and that living Word is able to establish us to be able to stand firm as we should. And ultimately that that's going to bring us to the point that Leanne was saying is the idea of obedience. The very purpose of the gospel is not just to tell you about Jesus. That's a very important part. But it's to tell you about Jesus so that you and I will respond appropriately and accordingly. And live our life for Jesus and according to Jesus. Do you remember what John, uh, what Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen? This is in the upper room, and one of the many statements that Jesus makes, and He says, "If you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments." And see, and that, you know, that's that's all part of the gospel. You know, the, the the objective of the gospel is not only to tell us the news. Okay, oh that's interesting. No, to tell us the news so that we, in faith, respond appropriately to the one who is now King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of mankind, mediator between man and God, and our ultimate high priest in time of need. So we need to realize, yes, God can establish us for whatever, but he's going to be through the gospel as we submit our wills to him. Because a faith that does not do what Jesus has taught, a faith that does not do what Jesus says or has revealed, is not fully and completely believing Jesus. You know, we've got to bring our faith in, to works. Okay. Chris. And as Romans 12, one says, it's our reasonable service. Good and point. It's just the logical conclusions. All yes. this is reasonable, logical. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that out. Yes. On the um, idea that you have to bring your faith to works, um, he ends much how he begins, but he interchanges these two thoughts. So in chapter 1, verse 8, he commends them because the, the, um, their faith had been proclaimed throughout the whole world. It was, it was well known. Mm-hmm. When you come to chapter 16, verse 17, what goes hand in hand with faith is obedience, and he, he says it that way here. Ah, uh, it's not verse 17, that's verse 19 actually. So here in 16, 19, the report of your obedience has reached to the whole world, so they go hand in hand. Oh, Good, I'm glad you connected those two verses, thank you. Anyone else on this kind of closing thought? This is, we've come full circle, and it's summing up everything in the middle of Romans. <laughs> You know, this is the practical aspect that you know when we see what who God is, what God has done through His Son Jesus Christ. You know, we need to glorify Him and to do so with a faith and obedience that clearly reflects that. And of course, and we know that, and we can do that because of the gospel. Anything else on these closing thoughts? Well, let's look, you know, I'm not saying we're, going, we're jumping around a little bit because you know, I wanted to kind of look at some different points. Let's go to verse 17 through 20. You know, 17 and 20, we kind, of, we've, we kind of hinted at the idea of the danger, the threat of false teacher, teacher's error. And you see that in verses 17 through 20, you know, where he says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. "...contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good, and innocent in what is evil." The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So it ends with the idea, okay, glorify God, you know, you know for he is able to establish you through his gospel you know, unto the obedience of faith. But he also, in these, clo- what's that? these are the closing thoughts of the apostle or of the spirit, the Holy Spirit through the apostle to this church at Rome. And so he gives us this warning now. He says, watch out for divisive teachings that are contrary you know, to God, contrary to Christ, contrary to the gospel. As pointed out by Jonathan, Paul had received this news about, about their faithful obedience. And Paul is very you know, encouraged and, 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 and happy about that news. But at the same time, he's aware of the fact that there's always danger just around the corner. And so he does not want them to be led astray. You know, they, they, they're at a good spot. you know, He writes, they're at a good place right now, spiritually. But he said, but don't allow this to happen to you. You know, this idea of different different teachers that cause dissensions and hindrances. that are not according to the truth not according to what they had learned and what they learned was the gospel of jesus christ what i want to kind of suggest here is basically this idea that satan is always seeking a way to get a foothold in the lives of christians it's in verse in verse 20 you have the state, the promise that god's going to crush satan for you yeah, but I want to suggest you know that okay, Satan is always trying to find a way to get a foothold in our lives, and so Paul is trying to kind of equip them, yeah, you know, so that they can be alert and not that not happen to them. And so on the one hand, they need to use heavenly wisdom, yeah, you know, to to uh, keep themselves unspotted. From the world or unspotted, you know, from evil, and this idea, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, of being, you know, clean or pure in that sense from the world is not uh, something that's just expressed in the book of Romans. I really like the way Paul says it in First Thessalonians, chapter 5. He really says the same thing in the sense of the warning to the church there, but he says in verse. Uh, uh, 21 and 22, the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians says, Examine yourself carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Very similar, isn't it? Doesn't that sound very similar to what he said in Romans? In Romans chapter you know, you know, 16, verse 19, he says, I want you to be wise in what is good, and I want you to be innocent in what is evil. How do you how you know so how are they gonna do that? You know, one, he says that, he says you need to you need to be alert. You know, don't become spiritually asleep. You, know, you, know, you need to stay awake to the dangers that are always around you. you know, dangers outside, sometimes dangers that can come within you know, the family of, of God's people. And so, like he says here to Thessalonians, he says, you need to examine things very carefully. You need to test things. And the way we're going to test that is going to be through the gospel. And so he says, okay, so you need to seek this idea of God's wisdom, that which is from above. He says, you've learned the truth. You have the truth. Now use it. Apply it. Equip yourself with it because there, there are going to be they're going to be threats to your faith and threats to the fellowship of believers. And so that's what he, why he says in verse 17, okay, watch out or keep your eye on this, you know, so that you don't turn away, you know, from the truth and you don't follow after them. But in verse 20, interestingly, what he does here, God is making a promise to these saints. He makes a promise in verse 20, he says, I'm promising you that you can beat Satan. Yeah, victory is promised over Satan in verse twenty. I want to begin. Give begin with a thought here: Did the devil defeat Jesus, or did Jesus defeat Satan? Right. And the idea of Jesus defeating the Satan, the idea of him defeating Satan, even though Jesus died, it was all part of God's spiritual military tactic it was all part of the plan and you think about the idea because you think okay you know you know jesus had to die that doesn't sound like a victory to me it sounds like the defeat that jesus had to die but go back to genesis 3 15. there's a promise you know and a prophecy we should say a prophetic promise that god actually stated to satan you know, about what the seed of woman the seed of woman was going to do and what was going to happen to the seed of woman remember you know, there's going to be there's going to be two sides to this you know, equation something's going to happen to the seed of woman and something's going to happen to satan what's going to happen to the seed of woman something's going to get injured in the in the prophecy bruise heel his heel's going to get injured what's going to happen you know, what's going to be injured on satan his head you know, generally speaking, <laughs> which is the greater injury? The head, yes. And so way back when sin was first committed, there in the Garden of Eden, God already is giving us, you know, some signs of what He's gonna do way in the future, you know, because God predestined the plan of salvation before He even created man. So in Genesis three, we're actually basically told, you know, Jesus is going to get hurt. He's going to get injured, but Jesus is going to win. He's going to defeat Satan. That's really what that says. Tie that with Hebrews 2.14. So jump, you know, jump centuries later to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 2.14. You know, And it talks about how it was necessary, speaking of Christ, it was necessary that he partake of flesh and blood as we are. He had to partake of the same flesh that we are so that he, he may render powerless who? S- Satan over death. How did he do that? Well, he did it by dying and being raised from the dead. And so through his death, we see Jesus is victorious. You know? And so here, now that's already happened. You know? So when Paul's writing to the Romans, you know, Jesus has already shown to us victory is in Jesus through faith. You know, our faith gives us our victory. Victory in Christ Jesus gives, you know, or let I me mean say faith in Christ Jesus gives us victory. So and What Christ is, has already been accomplished. So there is victory promised. It, it is accessible. It is attainable, but that doesn't mean that uh, there are not personal battles <laughs> that we we have to engage in. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be you know times that we might get wounded, spiritually speaking, you know, And you know we will and we need we will need to address those situations. But think about it. Just a couple examples of the idea that the sinner who's been cleansed by the blood of Christ and therefore is walking obediently by faith now in Jesus, how that, that one is promised you know, that he is able to crush Satan through Christ, not on our own, not our own strength, not our own knowledge, not our own wisdom. You know, you know, we can't save ourselves without Jesus Christ. But yet, you think a number of places in the the New Testament that we are given instructions on what we can do to overcome. For example, James 4, 7. James 4, 7. We're told, resist the devil and he will, what? He will flee. Now, that may be easier said than done sometimes because we may be drawn in by our own temptations and ungodly desires, but you know, we are promised, we're told, we can resist. Just like God is able to strengthen you through the gospel, and God says, okay, resist the devil, because you can. And if you resist him, he'll flee from you. Now, that has to be an ongoing resistance. I mean, it's not like, like I did it one day, and he never comes back. You know, you know, enemy is always looking for another you know, angle to strike at. But think of another one, the armor of of, of God in Ephesians 6. You know, put on the full armor of God there in Ephesians 6. And it is that full armor of God that empowers us, it equips us, you know, so that we are able to fight this battle. And, the, and there in those verses, he says, you need to do that so, so that you can stand firm against what? He says... If foot put on the whole armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Some verses may say the schemes of the devil. You know, because the devil's got all kinds of tactics. <laughs> you, know, you know, the spiritual arsenal that J- Satan uses against us is almost limitless, if you, if you, you, know, if you think about it. I mean, he, he has all kinds of ways to attack. But God is promising us here, you know, uh, you know through Paul writing to the saints in Rome and therefore still applicable to the saints in, in our modern age. Yes, we need to glorify God because of what he's done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we need to also be alert and awake to the fact that there, there are various tactics that uh, Satan uses against us, and one of those is the fact of this idea of false teaching. You know, the idea of error, false doctrines that can cause us to stray, cause us to fall away from the Lord. And so in these verses, you have the warning about this idea of the speech, the words of the one who causes dissension, the one who causes hindrance that are contrary to the gospel that has been once for all delivered. The idea of the these speeches, you know, New American says, you know, smooth and flattering speech. You know, you may have some different you know expressions describe how Satan can use words. He can use words to lead us astray, and particularly words through people who profess faith in God. I think in the context here, he's not talking about people who oh they deny God altogether. They, you know, the person who's going to cause dissension and hindrance among you know, uh, the family of God, you know, I don't think in the context here he's talking about the atheists out there. No, you know they can are they, they're, they're causing trouble. Yes, you know, and, and that's and that's something we, we we need to you know be alert and aware of and be on guard against. But the kind of uh, dis, you know, idea of disturbance that he's talking about here is something that comes from within, you know. And so you're talking about someone of faith, maybe even you know someone who is a brother in Christ who has begun to you know cause dissensions and disturbances because they are teaching something that is contrary from what they had learned in the gospel. So that's the idea of these you know. Flattering, smooth words, you know, persuasive words. Colossians 2 talks about the same thing. Bruce over here. You know, so the point, you know, the thing is, any teaching that's different from the true gospel of Christ is to be avoided. Well, it's the same tactic Satan used in the garden. Yes. In Genesis 3. They heard what God had told them. Mm-hmm. They knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. But Satan came and said, God didn't really say that. Right. God didn't really mean that, and that's what false teachers do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what really. That's really not what the Scripture says. Even though we have what God has mm-hmm. said. Yes. Good. I'm glad you tied that together. And that I, how, how words can be used, and even you know, in the sense, Bible words can be used to lead us astray, so that we start believing in something that is not according to the truth that God has spoken another thing that is addressed here is, is not only the words themselves that we're he said, we'll be careful but he says he talks about the 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 character of the, of this kind of person you know he, t- he said basically you know these dissension makers these uh you know, causers of division he says they it's really self-serving their interest is all about themselves you know their own thoughts their own desires he says they're they're not true servants of Christ. And in the first century, and even to, to, to a modern century today, that is still a concern that we need to be aware of. We need to test people's words. We need to test it in a, according to God's revelation. I want to just very quickly you know, read another passage. You know, over in second you know, Second Peter, you know, Paul is not the only one that wrote about this danger. You know, that was then and would be in the world. But in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, the apostle Peter as well is warning about false teachers. And, and he touches on the idea of the character behind all of it. You know, and he says in verse, he said, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you. With false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, so you know, so it was a it was a constant threat, you know, to God's people all along, and that's why, you know, moving along here, uh, that's why we're told keep a watchful eye on such teachers, and, and do not fellowship with them. He says, turn away. Some words may say, mark, mark them. The idea here is basically to to make note of this. You know, this person is teaching that which is uh, unlawful. That th- this person is teaching that which is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, there's the idea of be aware of it. You know, you know, recognize it. And he says, and don't have fellowship with that person. Uh, I need to just move on a little quick, get into the next section, but. One I wanted to think about this why this is such a threat. It, it, turn over to Second Corinthians chapter eleven. You know, to me this is a scary thought. It's the truth, but it's a bit scary. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven, uh where we are it's in the context of once again, false teachers, error, that kind of stuff, and the ability of Satan to disguise things so you don't see the error he says there in, in verse 12 he says what i am doing i will continue to do so this is cha- second corinthians chapter 11 verse 12 you know so that i may so i may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting for such men are false apostles so there is those even in the first century that are claiming to be apostles but they weren't but that's their claim he says he says and such men are false apostles deceitful workers disguising themselves disguising themselves as apostles of Christ no wonder for even satan even satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. That's sobering, and that's a little scary to me. The idea that unrighteousness, ungodliness, error, untruth, that's not even a word, uh, but you know, that that can be disguised in such a way that the, the appearance initially, it looks good, it looks right, it looks true, it, it look, that, that looks like something that is of God. Satan can do that, and Satan can can use men to accomplish that. And so that's why Paul, at the end of Romans, who had this amazing discourse uh, of, of what the gospel is and what the gospel does for us and how the gospel changes us, he says, but watch out for those who will start teaching something that is not of the gospel. And so he says, watch out for that. And he says, and don't have fellowship. Don't, you know, don't interact with them and condone that kind of error. Time is quickly running. I do want to try to finish this chapter. Very quickly, you have the next section, 21, 20 through 24, where you have greetings from Paul's fellow workers in Christ greeting the saints in Rome. And so back in Romans 16, verse 21 through 24, you've got basically you have, you know, you have six yeah, not no, six. You have you know, one, two, six, six, seven, You got eight. You have eight different names listed you know, here. And uh, and you know, and these are co-workers with Paul. And so at the time that Paul is writing this, these men are with him. And so the number of these names, just very quickly, for example, Timothy is first introduced in Acts 16, a young man who becomes a co worker, a close friend, a trusted worker. Who is described you know, near the end of Paul's life as a son of the faith? Um, Lucius you may be introduced there in chapter 13 when you got the church at Antioch. You know, sometimes, you know, are these the same person? It may be the same name and not the same person. So there's always some question. But there's a Lucius in Acts 13 when Paul you know, is first sent out on his first journey. Lucius was there in that church. Over, you got Jason in Acts 17. He was the one there in Thessalonica when you got this persecution and uproar. They dragged him. He's one of the Christians. that The city they dragged away, and he had to pay a fine because, you know, because of the work of the gospel. So you've got a number of men that are listed here. Tertius, there is, as it talks about, is to believe he would have been the scribe. It was very customary. For the author or writer of a book to dictate to a secretary. And so Tertius was the secretary to Paul. Yeah. Gaius yeah, is the host. And it's probably the same Gaius that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul baptized yeah, in Corinth. And so these, these are workers who are with Paul greeting the saints in Rome. So they're sending yeah, their best wishes to them. You know, because they are brethren in Christ. And then you get to this last section, which is the first half of the book, this long list of names where, where you have Paul commanding, Paul instructing the saints in Rome to greet one another. That's he is. So he is, he is instructing the saints in Rome to greet one another, and he, and he gives, you know, different reasons and commendations why that, that that should be done. He begins, for example, in verse 1. He says, you need to receive this sister, Phoebe. You know, and she, you look there in Romans 16. You know, she has been in Synchria. Synchria was a city very close to Corinth. Paul was at Corinth when he's writing in the Romans, you know, and so Phoebe has traveled from the, you know, the area of Corinth to Rome, and so he basically is basically you know, saying, "Okay, here's a letter of commendation. You know, she's a good sister. You need to accept her into your fellowship. You know, she is one who has been a benefactor of many in the cause of Christ." You know, so here, you know, there is this, you know, wisdom when you think about, you know, moving one place to another, and sometimes there's wisdom to have a letter of commendation. Have, you know, someone say, hey, you know, this sister, this brother, this, you know, they, he he is a good worker in the kingdom. You know, he, he is a, a faithful child of God. So he begins with that, but then in verse 13 all the way through verse 16, you've got All these names that are listed. And basically, what I want to emphasize is the idea that greeting brethren is important. Greeting brethren is important. It is an essential part in nourishing a strong and healthy fellowship among Christians. Failure to properly greet becomes detrimental to fellowship. Think about that. degree can become detrimental to the fellowship of Christians. And so Paul is, wants to make sure. Here is a body of Christians in Rome. It seems to be a thriving body of people. You know, they, you know, they've been reminded what the gospel is all about and how it needs to affect their, their life. And so when you realize sincere and affectionate greetings are going to build up one another. And so you've got several names that are, you know, listed here, you know, that uh, uh, are significant. And he, you know, says why. You've know, you got a couple, uh, Prisca and Aquila, first introduced in Acts 18, co-workers with Paul. They came out of Rome, they're back in Rome now, but they're an asset to Christ. He says, he says those, you know, that couple that's among, among you, he says, you need to greet them. You've got this Epineadus, who he's, he's talking about, a first convert in Asia or in Achaia. And then he lists several sisters. You know, Sisters in Christ, like Mary and uh, Rufus's mother. All of these sisters, he says, they need to be recognized for the labor that they're giving in the Lord. And he says, and you need to love, you need to love them, and you need to greet them. See, what he's saying, he's commanding the church in, in Rome. To make sure they greet one another properly. Yeah. I like the you know, Adronicus and Junius. He calls them kinsmen, probably indicative that they were Jews, that were converted to Christ. But he makes the point in this, he says, they were converted to Christ before Paul was. He makes the point to say that. Yeah. Yeah, they became Christians before I was ever a Christian. He says they you know they're just a great asset. I want to end with this final thought, verse 16 where you have this well-known statement where he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What the Holy Spirit is doing here is, through Paul, the Holy Spirit is regulating the nature, the attitude, the character of the greeting, that it needs to always be pure without guile. That's, That's the nature of a greeting. A greeting should always be pure without guile. Think about it, he's gone through this long list of names. I mean, some that we can't even pronounce probably correctly. He's gone through this long list, commending this one and that one for, in, in different ways. People that he, you know, he knew in other places. Maybe some of them he's just heard about them. But he makes the point to tell these Christians that your greeting needs to reflect a holy affection for one another. Remember what it says in Romans 12. Verse 9, love without what? Hypocrisy. Verse, t- verse 10 of the same chapter, be devoted to another in brotherly love. And, say, and one way that's manifest and reflected is in our greeting. Whether we greet or not is important. Yeah. People get their feelings hurt when they're not greeted sometimes. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. You know, sometimes it may may not be a misunderstanding. We need to understand Paul, through the Spirit, is telling the church, y'all need to make sure you greet one another all properly. And the kiss was and is a common custom of greeting in the world, then and in still today. It may not be the common way in the United States of America, but it still is a common way of greeting. And whatever the greeting is... Well, whether it's a handshake or whether it's a, an embrace or whether it's the, 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 the kiss, whatever the greeting is, it needs to be something that truly expresses unfeigned love. That has to be at the root of what our greeting is all about. And we'll just end on this, this, leave this thought question, and that is the touch is impactful. The touch is impactful. And that touch needs to be holy with love. Thank you for your attention. Appreciate it.